Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is All of It on WNYC. I'm Allison Stewart. This year marks the 30th anniversary of the Los Angeles riots and uprisings that occurred after four LAPD officers were acquitted for beating Rodney King after a car chase. But that one verdict was not the only cause of six days worth of unrest that resulted in 63 deaths, just under 2,400 injuries, and the burning and looting of more than 3,000 businesses. 12,000 people were arrested. Why the riots happened, how it happened, and the people who lived it were part of it. They make up season six of the podcast, Slate's Slow Burn L.A. Riots. The podcast uses first-person accounts, including possibly the last interview given by George Holliday, the man who taped the police beating of Rodney King, as well as expert interviews and news archives to show how the socioeconomic conditions for some black Los Angelinos, the leadership of the LAPD under Daryl Gates, and the court system all provided kindling just waiting to be ignited. Let's listen to a clip. This is in the introduction of episode two of Slow Burn, the L.A. riots. It's titled No Justice. This episode revisits the racial and economic inequality that would eventually stoke the flames of the riots. In March 1991, (coughs) two acts of violence rocked Los Angeles. Both were caught on videotape. Both revealed the fault lines of race, of money, and of power among the city's nine million people. And both would make clear to the city's black residents just how little their lives matter to the justice system. One was the beating of Rodney King. The other was what happened to Latasha Harlins at the Empire Liquor Market. The case that won't go away grew from an argument in an obscure market in South Los Angeles. This was such a stunning miscarriage of justice. It's a racial, political, legal mess. There are some beginning efforts at peacemaking. But there is an anger that wants redress and might not wait much longer. Joel Anderson is the host of Slow Burns LA Riots. The LA Riots. Joel, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I should also mention you're one of the producers as well. Uh, you know, there's so many great small details in this podcast which really help us who those of us who live through it who are a little bit older than you are think about it differently <laughs> you know for example we learned that rodney king anybody who was close to him called him glenn that was and mm-hmm. they refer to him as glenn when you're interviewing them what are some other pieces of information you learned about him that really never made it into the national conversation well i mean i think there's a couple of things with that one is that you know prior to um, the, the at least the riots piece of this, you know, Rodney Glenn King was known as an ex-felon. He was a you know that in and that in a manner of speaking explained why he fled the police officers on the night that he was beaten because he did not want to go back to prison. And so you have this sort of six foot three, two hundred and twenty five pound hulking black ex-felon at a time when people were in a panic all around the country about crime and increasing crime rates in particularly inner city communities. And so he came to sort of represent that paradigm there. But what you find out is that Rodney Glenn King was fundamentally sort of a, I don't want to say a pitiful person, but he was a guy that didn't have a lot of opportunity. Mm -hmm. It's not a a surprise that he ended up where he did. He was a high school dropout, and there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, his father was an alcoholic. 
did not allow him to attend school and, you know, uh, without working overnight buffing floors with him at their janitorial service, um, that he was a baseball prospect of some renown, that some people, a lot of people seem to think that he could have been a professional baseball player. And then you go to the moments after the beating and after the trial and after the riots, a person that struggled with his own demons and his addictions. And I don't think I knew the depths of that. You know, mm-hmm. I think that for me, Rodney King was sort of a punchline, you know, that, you know, you listen to the hip hop at the time, and you know, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. the, you know, the people joked about him getting beat up. And then, you know, the, the you know, can't, can't we all just get along moment sort of made him seem pathetic in a way, but we never really, had a chance to sort of investigate who the man was behind all that stuff, a fundamentally broken man um, at the end of the day. The other thing I, I found very interesting is after the the beating, everyone had an opinion about what he should do. People in the community, mm-hmm. people in his family, right. legal uh, people came out of the woodwork. And a lot of people were really, um, they questioned who represented him legally and what kind of counsel they gave him. What were some of the concerns? Well, yeah. So what's really fundamental to explaining Rodney King's uh, moment in the spotlight here is that his mother was a Jehovah's witness and is a Jehovah's witness. Mm -hmm. And that means they don't believe in making political statements of any kind that they sort of shun that sort of public life. Well, so after he's beaten and there's this, you know, question as to, hey, did this happen because he was black or what? His mother is insistent that he not talk about that, that we, we do not, that is not something we bring up as witnesses. We don't talk about that. And so his first attorney, a white man, uh, a Jewish man named Steve Lerman from Beverly Hills, is his attorney at the beginning of this. And he is on board with that. He's like, I don't want to talk about race. We don't have to use race to make the case. And in fact, injecting race or racism into the case may be bad for us trying to win a settlement. Well, obviously, a lot of people in the community who have had these problems with LAPD for years were, are looking at this like we finally got visceral proof mm-hmm. of the things that we've been talking about that have been going on in this neighborhood, and you're telling us that you don't want to talk about the fact that racism may have had something to do with this. And so he was sort of caught in between these warring factions, his mother and his attorney and people in the community that had been working on you know, the police brutality that LAPD had inflicted on black and brown communities for decades. So for a while, um, he listened to his mother and his attorney, but as it went along and he had more and more difficulties with his attorneys, I mean, this is a guy, every attorney in Southern California, you know, hey, he's going to win a settlement. It's just Mm -hmm. a matter how large it's going to be. And so he had to shuffle between attorneys who had different approaches. His next attorney was a guy who was insistent that this was a case of racist police abuse. Um, and so, you know, he's kind of, he's going back and forth in between those things, but fundamentally, you know, Rodney King is not a person that thought a lot about how race affected what happened to him on the night of March 3rd, 1991, which is really interesting, right? Like I did, that's mm-hmm. again, that's not something that I would have known at the, in the moment. Let's listen to a clip from episode four of Slow Burn LA Riots. It's called Glenn, where you talk to Rodney King's best friend, Johnny Kelly, about King's mental and emotional well-being after the beating. His lawyer, his first lawyer, Stephen Lerman, had hired a psychiatrist to treat him for depression. Let's listen. Doctors said King had permanent brain damage, and Lerman hired a psychiatrist to treat him for depression. The damage to his looks was particularly hard for King to deal with. He took a lot of pride in his look. He cared about his face. He cared about his hair. He cared a lot about his teeth. He did care about his appearance, what he looked like and all that type of stuff. But he knew he had some issues and he was trying to deal with them the best he could, you know. 
King was terrified of going out in public and getting recognized. He wore a wig of dreadlocks to disguise himself. And he drank. He was trying to medicate himself to uh, get away from the pain. And so that's why he started drinking so heavy. In an interview years later, King talked about his addiction. The alcoholic gene, it has trickled down, you know. My dad was alcoholic and some of the drinking over the years was kind of embarrassment to me. I couldn't walk in Rodney's shoes, you know, uh, being what he went through. So to me, I felt like, okay, if this is going to help the pain, you know, all I can do is let you, you know, go for it. You know what I mean? Who was your support system during all this time? Like, who were you, like, who did you talk to about, like, man, Rodney's messed up, bro? Um, I really couldn't talk to nobody. You know, it was just me and him. So it was just me and Rodney. That's from Slow Burn, the L.A. riots. I'm speaking with its host and one of its producers, Joel Anderson. So the podcast features what is likely the last interview given by George Holliday, the man who taped the police beating of Rodney King. He died last year. With In retrospect, how did he feel about the recording and the tape, which we should also say he lost possession of? Right, right, right. Well, you know, at the moment, I mean, we thought it was pretty good. He had I mean, George Holliday, he'd been giving interviews sporadically over the years. It's not like, you know, he had not talked to the media for quite a long time, but um, it wasn't, he didn't return everybody's call. And you actually have to go through his publicist in Australia to get him on the phone. Like, you, you can't just call him directly. Like, you have to get connected through this guy in Australia. So just the fact that we were able to get him and to sit with him for two hours, which we did in June of uh, 2021 last year, was great. I mean, he was very accommodating very patient in going over events that happened 30 years ago and events that he basically has to relive every few days, weeks, months because of interview requests. Um, and so, yeah, we thought this is great, but we never had any inkling that it might be the last, you know, long interview that he might give. Um, and, and although I should say that, you know, some of his political beliefs kind of came out towards the end of the interview mm -hmm. as we started dug into that, you could, you could kind of see how he might have been a guy that was, um, you know, not somebody that would have taken the vaccine, so to speak. Let's listen to a clip from episode one, which is called The Tape. Um, after the incident, George Holiday and his wife, Maria, tried to process what they just saw. We're asking each other, wow, what's going on? Why, why is this happening? You got to remember that I come from a different culture, you know, growing up in Argentina. You know, I've seen a couple of... Uh, military coups take over the government. I've seen people uh, abducted by military personnel right in front of me. Cars pull up, guys jump out, grab somebody, throw them in the car, and the car takes off, and nobody asks anything, nobody says anything. The beating lasted for 81 seconds. After it was over, the officers swarmed King on the ground and put him in handcuffs. George and Maria Holiday went back inside their apartment trying to make sense of what they had seen. They took the tape out of the camera and played it on their TV to get a better look. Rewind the tape and we watched it once and that's when more of those, you know, those kind of questions were coming to our minds. You know, what did he do? That kind of stuff. That is from Slate Slowburn, the LA riots. This, it's a long series, so I'm gonna just punch, punch through a couple different things that I found <laughs> really interesting that I didn't, that I really didn't know or understand. You really come to understand, and you guys reported this really well, about how much power police chief Daryl Gates had. 
He was controversial. He was unapologetic about the whole thing. And that the mayor of L.A., Tom Bradley, couldn't really do anything about it. Could you explain to people why the police chief, that position was so untouchable at that time? No, sure. So, uh, well, I'll say that L.A. is sort of a weak mayor form of government. Um, There's 15 city council members. It's really hard to build any consensus in a city that big or that broad, right? So the mayor has very limited discretion at the time of what they could do with the police chief. And the police chief, um, even even preceding Daryl Gates by several decades, they had civil service protections that made it almost impossible to fire him. And so, you know, if you have a guy that's a good chief, uh, you know, whatever you think good policing is, that might work out. But if you have a guy that becomes sort of an unaccountable autocrat uh, in the way that Daryl Gates and his predecessor, Bill Parker, is, then it becomes a problem. And so Daryl Gates knew how to press his advantages um, during that time. He knew that uh, Mayor Tom Bradley there was very little that he could do to keep him or the department accountable. And so he always pressed, you know, he always, you know, bumped up against that, um, that he knew that there there was nobody that could be in control of him. So for for instance, I mean, you know, Daryl Gates is the guy who came up with the idea for SWAT teams. He's the guy that Mm -hmm. came up with the idea for dare. Um, He is seen sort of nationally as, you know, one of those sort of groundbreaking law enforcement officers who fundamentally changed the way uh, policing happened over, you know, maybe from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, right? And he became as much of a celebrity in that town as anybody else. Like, you hear people refer to him almost in the terms of, like, a Hollywood star. That he was tall, tan, fit, you know, had a very commanding presence. And so he leaned into that a lot. And in fact, he often threatened Mayor Tom Bradley because they had a relationship that was very bad. Um, they went, you know, in between the time of the beating and, the L.A. rides, they had not spoken to each other in about 13 months. But Daryl Gates always knew that he had that power over Tom Bradley. In fact, he said, you know what, one day I may just run for mayor just to embarrass you and beat you. Um, you know, that's how that's that's I mean, that sort of gives you a, a glimpse of the power dynamics here. That's not often that you can have a police chief talk to a mayor like that. But in L.A. in 1991 and 92, that's how it was. We only have about a minute left. Did you know you you talk about as a kid how you first experienced this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What was your experience as a grown up in a few words, working through this? Oh yeah, sure. I just basically watching the tape. I mean, I forgot how fundamentally brutal it was. You right. know, mm-hmm. over the years, you understand that Rodney King was beaten, but to actually see him take sixty blows with steel batons is horrifying. And then once you see that, then it makes a lot more sense what happened to Rodney and what became of him after the fact. And you also kind of overlook the fact that he almost died out there, man. He got mm-hmm. nearly a dozen broken bones. Um, so I think the brutality of it was more jarring than I remembered in that moment. It didn't, it seemed like a joke until I started watching that video over and over again. It is definitely worth a listen. It's Slate's Slow Burn, the LA riots. I've been speaking with one of its producers and its host, Joel Anderson. Joel, thank you so much for sharing your reporting with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. And that is all of it for today. I'm Allison Stewart. I appreciate you listening, and I appreciate you. Be a hero. Wear a mask. Be a superhero. Follow vaccine mandates. And I will meet you back here next time. There's 
a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts.